Good morning, everyone. My name is John Sherrill. I'm a pastor here at Fifth Reformed Church, and it's great to be worshiping with you this morning. And if you're a guest with us, thanks for finding us and joining us today. It's great to be uh, with you and uh, kind of meet you in this way. We welcome you. We're continuing a series in the book of Revelation uh, on the seven letters to the seven churches in, in Asia Minor. And today we're looking at the third of those letters, the letter to the church in Pergamum. Uh, before we dive into the message, let's pray, shall we? Uh, God, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your word and for the way that you lead us by your spirit. And God, I pray now that you would make your word come alive in us, reveal to us, show us what you have for us, uh, enliven our minds and hearts and spirits that we might receive all that you have for us. Thank you, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're uh, uh, in this series on the, on the letters to the seven churches, and uh, they're both uh, interesting and powerful because they involve Jesus addressing local congregations directly. So the, the Lord speaking to a local church. And of course, while we believe the messages were for those churches, they, they also are for all churches across time. So they apply to us very directly as well. And as we've been seeing, there's a pattern in these letters. All of the letters are addressed to the angel of the church in such and such a place. And as we've discussed the last couple weeks, that most likely means not that the letter is addressed to a, a heavenly being, an angel in that sense, uh, but more likely the pastor of that local church. The word angel uh, in a more general sense means messenger of God. So it could be understood to be directed toward the leader or preacher of those individual congregations. So the, the letters are addressed in that way. And then Jesus goes on to say, I know. You know, he, he reassures us that he knows what the church is going through. Uh, he knows us and what we're experiencing. God isn't way out there somewhere. God is right here with us in the midst of it. And after saying what he knows, the Lord goes on uh, to, to give direction to the church, either through encouragement or correction, or sometimes a little bit of both, as in the case of this letter. And the, the net effect of all of this is that we end up, uh, with all seven letters, we end up with seven marks of a church that are very important to Jesus. And we know they're important to Jesus because he tells us directly that they are. And, and that's really what makes these letters so powerful. And today we heard Jesus' letter to the church in Pergamum. And here, here's how it starts again. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. Now back in uh, the first chapter of Revelation, the apostle John described his experience of this vision that God gave him. And, and it began with, with John hearing a voice, the voice of Jesus, saying this, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. And then the, the text goes on to say that John turned to look at the voice that was speaking to him, and he saw the Lord. He saw Jesus. And there's a longer description there of what he saw. Uh, but one thing he saw was this. Coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. And we, we talked on the first week of this series about the symbolic nature of Revelation. One author put it this way, which I thought was really helpful, that the images in the book are, are symbols to be interpreted rather than actual features to be imagined. 
So this sword coming out of Jesus' mouth, we, we shouldn't envision a person with an actual sword. I mean, the idea is to remember that the words that Jesus speaks are sharp and piercing as a sword. They are the word of God, right? So, so there's, there, these symbols are, are to be interpreted. And here in, in our text today, that image comes around again. The words of Jesus are the word of God. Now, some ancient church fathers thought that the double-edged sword referred to the Old and New Testaments, the, the word of God. Now, whether that's true, we don't know. But we do know that the Bible is God's word, and we know that the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. At the very beginning of this letter to the church in Pergamum, Jesus reminds us that his word is that word, God's word. You know, the word that in John Stott's description pricks the conscience, cuts away our camouflage, pierces our defenses, lays bare our sin and need, and kills all false doctrine. That word. You know, what we're about to hear in the rest of this letter are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. So... We should listen. And here is that word to the church in Pergamum and to us. I know where you live, says Jesus, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. You know, Jesus knew their context. It was incredibly hard. One of their church family had been martyred. Jesus commends the church for their loyalty to him, even in this, in this very difficult circumstance. He says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Wow, that's kind of powerful. <laughs> Jesus doesn't just know our works and our sufferings, as described in the, in the first two letters. He knows our environment, our community, the, the culture in which we live, how we're impacted by that. He knows our, our circumstances, every detail of our context. He knows what it's like to live where we live, to face the challenges that we face, to, to experience the uncertainty and fear with which we wrestle. Now, Jesus knows, not, not just kind of, he really knows. And in the case of Pergamum, Jesus knew the constant spiritual assault under which the church lived. It was back in 2002 when the U.S. Army established forward operating base Salerno in southeast Afghanistan, kind of at the, at the foot. Well, actually, it was up in the mountains, I guess, on that mountain range between Afghanistan and, and Pakistan. It was one of the strongholds of the Taliban. That base was made famous uh, because of the nickname it received. You might have heard about it. It was called Rocket City because of the nearly continuous barrage of mortar fire that fell upon it day and night. I mean, there was almost always incoming fire at this base. Spiritually, being a Christian in Pergamum would have been like that. And one historian wrote this, no traveler could visit Pergamum without being impressed 
by its welter of temples and altars. And this from a Bible dictionary. The Acropolis of Pergamum crowned a steep hill that rose 1,000 feet above the plain. Near the summit stood an immense altar to Zeus, and at a short distance from this altar, there was an elegant temple of Athena. And there were other deities honored by large temples in this city, but even more important was the cult of Rome that, that really demanded the allegiance of people, that they, that they worship the Lord Caesar rather than the Lord Jesus. And this spiritual belief thrived in Pergamum. All of these things together led Jesus to describe Pergamum as the place where Satan lives, meaning that in the, in the course of everyday life, Antichrist was more visible than Christ, had more influence in the culture. And spiritually, this was forward operating base Salerno. You know, Pergamum was Rocket City, and the Christians there lived under constant, unrelenting spiritual assault. That sound familiar to anybody? I mean, the, the church living under constant, unrelenting spiritual assault? I mean, all, all of these letters to the seven churches are applicable to us, but, but for me, this one really hits home. I mean, the, the, the church living under constant spiritual pressure and the call to remain loyal to Jesus in the midst of it all. Right? Loyalty and faith matter to Jesus. He's telling us that in this letter. And those Christians in Pergamum show us the way. They, re, they remained true to Jesus and they did not renounce their faith in him. Remember, Jesus asked this question, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? In all the spiritual turmoil of our, of our times, are we remaining true? You know, every day we're tempted to abandon Jesus and in some way, small or large, to renounce our faith in him. Don't do it. You know, if you slow down and do your spiritual homework, you'll find that every one of those temptations is based on a lie. Don't believe the lies. And the Christians in Pergamum remained true to Jesus even in very difficult times. And Jesus saw that and he affirmed it in them. That was a very good thing. But they weren't perfect and Jesus had some correction for them. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So the issue was that there were some in the church who held to an alternative teaching, meaning teaching that did not correspond to the apostolic tradition, the gospel that was handed down to the church by the apostles. And, and we'll unpack that in a second. But that, that was the issue but the problem was twofold. The fact that a small group that some in the church had departed uh, uh, the gospel was half the problem, but most of the members of the church had remained true to Jesus, uh, for which he already commended them in the, in the first half of the letter. So the second half of the problem was that the large group, the church, was tolerating this small group that had departed the gospel and had embraced some different and dangerous beliefs. 
and they were still present within the church. The church was tolerating that, and, or at least not doing anything about it. I just don't know how we can interpret what Jesus says in this letter except to conclude that what we believe matters. The content of our faith matters. And it, it doesn't just matter in general. It actually matters to Jesus. It matters to God. And we know that because he tells us that here. And also, it doesn't just matter individually. It's just not about me and what I believe. It matters communally what we as a church believe and what we're holding to as a community and, and the witness we're portraying to the world through that. And with regard to the gospel, there is truth and there is error. And here we see that Jesus has a deep concern for the preservation and advancement of truth. And it's very clear that Jesus does not agree with thinking that goes like this. You know, in, in the end, it really doesn't matter what you believe as long as you live well and love people. That, that's what Christians are really supposed to do. That is not true. Now, we are supposed to live well and love people, no doubt about that, but that's our response to God. That's the normal, natural outworking of our faith in, in the world. Uh, kind of like the, the James thing. I mean, show me your, your faith without deeds, right? I mean, a, a real faith will cause a re an outward response in our lives. But living well and loving people are not the content of what we believe. Uh, that's what we do based on what we believe. Jesus was asked this question directly. I, I don't know if you remember that in John's gospel. Here it is. Then the crowd asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Or in, in simple speak, what are we supposed to do? Is it live well and love people? Is that, is that the whole thing? Is, is there something else? What are we supposed to do? And Jesus answered them. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. You know, our first and primary work as human beings is to believe the truth about Jesus, to place our trust in him. I'm not saying that faith is a work. You know, God gives us the gift of faith. But the first thing we do is believe and everything else comes from there. You know, our, our, our church launched the year with a sermon series called The Essentials. And it, it revolved somewhat around that kind of famous quote by Rupert Maldanius, uh, who said, uh, in uh, essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. And it's a great and wise saying. Uh, but of course, you have to define what, what the essentials are, right? I mean, in, the, in this time of the virus, we've heard a lot about essential workers. But what are the essential beliefs of the Christian faith? John Stott put it this way. The Christian faith in its fundamentals concerns the person and work of Christ on the one hand and the life of righteousness on the other. Christianity in its essence exalts Christ and promotes holiness. So, so what was the rub with the teaching of the Balaamites and Nicolaitans? 
And you can read about Balaam, the prophet in Numbers 22 through 24. The whole story is there. But the summary version is in our text today. Balaam taught Balak, the king, to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Balak enticed them to sinful self-indulgence, to do things that ought not to be done. And, and really, the Nicolaitans were the New Testament version of the Old Testament story of Balaam and Balak. They, they argued that personal holiness for the follower of Jesus didn't matter. I mean, they taught that Christ set us free from the law. They were antinomian in this sense. They, they argued that salvation was salvation from the law so that we're no longer bound by the moral requirements of the law and, and thus free to do whatever we'd like. In fact, as their argument went, because we're no longer under law but under grace, we can continue in sin so that God's grace can continue to abound toward us in forgiveness. I mean, this is the, the very argument that the Apostle Paul counters in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may, be, may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? I mean, evidently, some in the church in Pergamum were no longer living by this. They were pursuing sin with the idea that uh, either it didn't matter or possibly that it might even glorify God by highlighting God's grace and forgiveness. Now, that's a problem. But the problem Jesus had with the church in Pergamum was, was twofold. He was concerned about the behavior and belief of the small group, and he was concerned about the, the apathy of the larger group in failing to address it. I mean, this is a stark difference from what Jesus said to the church in Ephesus. Remember that? Here's what he said to them. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The church in Ephesus hated the practices of the Nicolaitans. The church in Pergamum tolerated the practices of the Nicolaitans. I, I don't know if you've ever encountered this question, but all, all these letters to the churches, the, the seven churches, raise this question. Uh, you know, if Jesus were to write a letter to your church, what would it look like? What would it say? Uh, and, and in each of these letters, there, there's a question begging to be asked. And the question that begs to be asked in this letter is this. Are we tolerating something we ought not to be tolerating as a church? Is there any place where our gospel is out of alignment with that which the apostles handed down? This is really what it means to be reformed. We're reformed and always reforming according to the word of God. We look at scripture, and if there's a discrepancy between scripture and our life, we know that we're the ones who need to change. We don't try to make the Bible fit us. We align our lives to it. And as in all the other letters, Jesus calls the church to a change of thinking. He says, repent, therefore, to the small group who'd gone astray in belief and to the large group who were not holding them accountable. Repent, change your thinking, align your life to that change of thinking. And, and it comes with a threat or, or, or maybe more likely a reality consequence. And Jesus says this, 
uh, repent, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Remember, the sword of Jesus' mouth is the word of God. What a terrifying thought. The word of God turned against you. And one day, this sword coming from Jesus' mouth, the word of God will change its function. The Bible is clear about that. It will move from being the message of truth, calling all people back to relationship with God, to being the message of judgment. And every person, everywhere, will be judged according to the truth, no matter what their personal ideas are. And we should change our thinking for the single reason that Jesus commands us to. And of course, no one wants to be on the wrong end of God's word. But Jesus is also good enough to remind us of the reward for those who overcome. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. I I won't unpack all of this now, just the summary given by one commentator. Uh, What then is the promise of the manna and the name on the stone? It's the pledge of a fuller revelation to the person who holds fast the revelation already granted. The hidden manna is Christ. The new name is Christ. In essence, to the person who remains true to the name of Jesus and does not renounce the faith given us by the apostles, the reward is more Jesus. And that's not just a silly thought. It's actually one of the greatest truths of scripture that that God himself is our reward. God said it to Abram, you know, before Abram became Abraham, God said, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. And God himself is is our our prize and and reward uh, for a life of faith because the whole point is being brought back into this single relationship that gives us life and helps us understand who we are. There's a lot more to say about that, but we'll we'll save that for another time. This, This letter from Jesus to the church in Pergamum makes it very clear that Jesus is concerned about truth. He wants his truth to triumph over Satan's lies. And and in in that sense, it seems that Paul's charge to his apprentice Timothy is really a good charge to all followers of Jesus. This from 1 Timothy. Timothy, Christian, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have departed from the faith. Meaning, guard that gospel that has been entrusted to us, handed down from the apostles, from Jesus himself. Turn away from everything contrary to that. This is that to which we are called as followers of Jesus. And as the Lord said himself, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches.
In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, give us ears to hear. Uh, give us discernment as we look inwardly. Help us know if there are ways, large or small, in which we've departed from you and the gospel you have given us. Uh, and help us, Lord, hold fast to that which is true and to be able to recognize that which is error. Uh, help us embody those uh, two great things that you embodied perfectly, both grace and truth. Uh, thank you, Lord Jesus. We ask it in your name. Amen.